0: I want to make a quick invitation to each of you? Um, <clears throat> a few weeks ago, or e- and even last week, we had shared, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that um, Saturday, yesterday, was your former pastor, my father-in-law, Claude Lykins' 97th birthday, and he's here with us today, and uh, great to have him in, in worship with us. Thanks. And also, our, our nephew, his grandson, Dayton Likens, from Oklahoma, is here today. Uh, flew in for the, the celebration, and we had a great celebration yesterday at our home. And um, we had said last week, if you, you know, have a card or something you like to send send it to church, and several of you did. Well, then we asked him, you know, what do you want? Oh, I want it big. I want as many people there as I can get. So today, from 3 to 5 o'clock here at the church... Uh, we're just going to have a little come and go celebration. Uh, just if you want to come and just say happy birthday, and you know, spend five minutes and and just see him and say hi to him. You're more than welcome to do that. We're going to be at the church from three to five, and uh, celebrate his life. Um, you know, getting very few these days for being a World War II veteran, and uh, of course, pastor his entire life, missionary for 19 years, and your pastor. So. Uh come by this afternoon anywhere between three and five. Now when Michelle and I do our Christmas open house, you know, we we say it's come and go or come and stay. We really don't care. And most people come and stay, and we love that. Uh for today, it is come and go. Get out of here. No, we just no. We don't want to take your whole day. There's other events that you have going on, and you know, he's gonna get tired. So let's just come and go, like, you know, come quickly and see him, say happy birthday. Uh, we're going to have some light refreshments and things, and so we hope that you'll, you'll come by, and we have some that um, are you know, still in the community that want to come by and see him as well and things, so uh, you're invited. I want you to know that. In the Bible <clears throat> and throughout life, there we've seen many portraits, many pictures of Jesus Christ, uh, you probably have a favorite picture that you've seen that you have of Jesus. Maybe you have a print of that and you have it in your home somewhere. I know, growing up, my mom and dad had one of Jesus laughing, and I thought that was the coolest picture, you know, of, of our Lord laughing. And uh, but there are some that we all would recognize as being popular, you know, important portraits of Jesus Christ. We just celebrate. For example, the nativity. That would be a portrait of Jesus that all of us would recognize. And I used one, what probably the earliest one you ever saw would have been, looked something like this because it would have been maybe a picture in your children's Bible and it looked something like that. So um, that would be one that we would say, everybody knows that portrait. Or then there's the one that I call the church Jesus. Um, Everybody knows this picture. It's been in every church. Uh, Warner Solomon painted this picture, and every church has it, um, you know, and you've seen it everywhere, right? We, and we know that Jesus did have blue eyes and sandy blonde hair. So that's a great representation. You know, um, I like that one. You know, I love the image of Jesus carrying the lamb You know, I think that's an important picture that all of us, you know, straight from Scripture and and him being the good shepherd. Um, I love the picture when Jesus takes a little boy's lunchbox and he feeds thousands, more than 5,000 people uh, on that hillside that day. Probably one that all of us like is Jesus walking on the water, right? We we like the image of, of that, the faith that it took for Peter to get out of the boat and walk to Jesus. And then this is probably the most popular picture we see all the time. Jesus knocking at the door, right? And, and I don't know, you've probably learned this, but you know, the, if you look the door going around the other side, it's in the shape of a heart, and there's no handle on the door, so you can't get in. You have to let him in. Yeah, you knew this, right? All right, so there's that one. Yeah, it's super popular, and, um, and all of us know, know that one. Um, of course, Jesus on the cross. Um, That's an image that all of us see. We Many different portraits of that. Uh, Bursting from the tomb. (laughs) This is funny. That's not really bursting, but it's a good picture. You know, so I like it. Uh, Coming from the tomb. You know, we we like that picture. Um, I like the, you know, we've done this this morning. I like the picture of Jesus breaking bread. So we know that's what Jesus looked like. (laughs) I love that picture for a second. <laughs> or the fact we know that Jesus saves, right? Um, I, I, had, <laughs> I had a little boy in one of my churches that um, I, he, he, he was autistic and pretty severe, and he loved soccer. I mean, that was like his greatest thing. And his parents bought him that shirt, Jesus saves, you know. And yes, he does. He saves. And, uh, and so if that's the way you can remember it, then that's fine. I don't care. You know? um, there is one portrait of Jesus Christ that most of us, um, it's hard to, to imagine. It doesn't fit the other portraits that we have of Jesus. It just seems out of place. When we read this in the Bible and we see what's happening in the life of Jesus at this time, and it was during his last Week on this earth. He's come into Jerusalem. It's between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. It's that last week. And that is a picture, a portrait that we find in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Jesus with a whip. Jesus with a whip. The title of this sermon is called Deliberate Actions, and you'll understand. What I mean by that in a moment. Let me read to you from John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts. He found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all the temple courts, drove out, uh, drove from... I'm sorry, and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. What would it take to make Jesus this angry? What would it take to see him just turn tables over and run people out and actually take a whip and use it? What would it take? Well, it was a deliberate action on Jesus' part, and I believe we need to have... That same delivered action. Well, let's look first at a little bit of history. Let's look at what the church was supposed to be doing during that time. Now, this was in the temple. So basically the church, okay, the place where the people of God would come and worship. And I'm going to say this a couple of times. The job of the church that day has not changed in that their job was to supply everything needed for God's people to worship to supply everything needed for God's people to come and worship. Now here they were getting ready to celebrate the Passover. This was the oldest celebration and feast that the Jews celebrated. Jesus would have been raised in a Jewish home in which he celebrated this Passover feast every year of his life. And he even celebrated this with his disciples, with his apostles on that Good Friday night that we know with sharing of the the Lord's table, which we celebrate. So Jesus would have celebrated this. It was a custom that they did. And as they did, uh, early, in, when this was first established, you got to think, the first time they ever celebrated this was the first Passover. During their time in Egypt and the, the Passover um, had, had passed over, the, the death angel had passed over their homes. and uh, they celebrated that, and that's where they got this instructions for how this meal should be. And every year then after, they would celebrate it in the same way. So the first few years, 40 years, they're all together. They're living in one community. And so when it came time for them to celebrate, it wasn't difficult. They, they had an easy time of getting all that was needed to celebrate together as a community this Passover feast, this Passover celebration. But as time changed, and especially as we get to the New Testament days, now people had scattered all over the land of Israel. Uh, They were living everywhere, and they would all come back to Jerusalem for this feast. So they have a, a journey. They are all traveling with their families to come back to worship this Passover meal, this Passover feast and celebration back in Jerusalem. Now, you can imagine. um, I know, you know, when I grew up and I've seen all the little, you know, stories. You know, you have those stories where you think it's amazing, you know, as an adult that you're still alive. You know, I can remember traveling with my parents and, you know, we didn't even know what a seatbelt was. You know, I remember my dad thinking we're traveling all the way to Florida. So he actually built a bed in the backseat of our car so that my brother and I could just sleep all the way there. Um, you know, we just didn't care, I guess, didn't know any better. And, uh, but I do remember traveling, and and for me, um, I, I didn't mind it so well. It, it was fine. I didn't mind traveling. I made the best of it, and, but my brother hated it. And so it was a constant. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You guys are shaking your heads like, like, you were that person. Or no, no, you have kids that were that person, right? I remember my brother one time was coming to see us, and, and so his little girl, she hated traveling just like him. And he said, Sarah, what I'll do is I'll set up a TV. Um, this, you know, this is years ago. So he actually set this TV, battery-powered TV, and she could watch a tape, uh, videotape, VHS tape, uh, of, of her favorite show. And so um, we're, they're traveling. I bet you guys did the same thing. She kept asking. How much further is it? How much further is it? And he said, Sarah, it's two blues clues. You know, you, you relate it to something they know. And she said, well, can't you fast forward? <laughs> that makes total sense, doesn't it? You know, um, some of you have large families. And so traveling with a large family would be very difficult. Or you took maybe your family pet along with you. And that made it even more of an adventure traveling wherever it was you were going to go. But can you imagine going to Jerusalem on foot, traveling with your family, and there were certain things that you knew when we get there, I'm going to need to celebrate this Passover celebration, this Passover meal. What did they need? Well, let me just share with you. First of all, you've got to rest from your work and come together for worship. Bring to the altar... Two bulls, a full-grown ram, seven rams a year old that have nothing wrong with them, six pounds of your finest flour mixed with olive oil, four pounds of flour mixed with oil, two pounds of flour mixed with oil, and one goat. Does anybody want to head to Florida with that stuff in tow? No, none of us would want to do that. So what does the church decide? We'll supply that for them. So very simply, I would probably, if I you know, lived in Nazareth or somewhere else, I would take these same things, and I would go to my local synagogue and sell them to that synagogue. I would take that money, go to Jerusalem, and buy those exact same items in Jerusalem. And it was the church that provided that need because that's what you need to worship. We still have that job today. The church ought to be providing everything people need for a place to come and worship. And so that's that's how you would do it. That's what they should have been doing. Okay? They should have been just providing those things that the church needed for worship. It's our job every week to provide the things that you need, that we need to worship. We come together, and, and we've been blessed to have a beautiful place that we can come and worship together and in our society today i'm so grateful and thankful for the use of technology so that people in their homes today can be able to be a part of our worship time together of course there's nothing like being together is there we provide the the elements for our lord's table we provide beautiful music singing as the scripture said psalms hymns and spiritual songs We provide an atmosphere that is suitable for worship. We provide everything that is needed for worship. Everything, that's what our job is. And that's what the church should have been doing. But that's not what the church was doing. It's not what the church was doing. When Jesus entered the synagogue that day, he saw the church selling those animals and the flour and the oil even exchanging money for those who had traveled from different regions that used maybe a different type of coin or, or a different type of currency. But they were doing it in a corrupt way. You'll remember that said these seven rams, perfect rams. They, they could have nothing wrong with them at all. And they were selling these rams with blemishes. They weren't perfect. There was something wrong with them. And they were overpricing them. You know, there was supposed to be this law of, well, I'm from, say, Nazareth, and so when I sold my seven rams, this was the amount of money the church gave me. And so that ought to be the exact same amount of money that the church charges me for those seven rams when I come into Jerusalem. Well, they weren't. They were charging more. And they were giving you a defective product for more money. And then they were pocketing that money. And then if you were exchanging money, there would be a fee, for that, So we're going to keep a little bit of that money to our, for ourselves. And so God's people were being robbed by the church, by God's priests, by his leaders in the church. They were robbing God's people, and they weren't getting what they needed to come and be able to worship the way God had instructed them and the way they had done that for years, thousands of years, that they had been able to do that that way. And now they can't because the church didn't supply what the church should have been doing. Well, Jesus made something. So way back in, I think it was 1980 or so, this movie came out. And I would have been, you know, 11 years old. Greatest movie of all time. Raiders of the Lost Ark. I was indiana jones i mean i had i still this day have an indiana jones hat and jesus made a whip now when i was 10 i wanted a whip so bad i was i'd given anything to have had a whip and i never got one until after i was married michelle and i went to a uh estate sale and this guy had been a farmer and at one time he lived in texas as a cattle wrestler and there was a whip and i'm like i'm buying that whip i've wanted one all my life but it's also a great sermon illustration. I've looked up every translation in every language I can find to prove this point. In John's gospel, in every translation I can find, in every language I can find, there's one word that is in every one of them. So I'm going to assume, and I, I've looked it up in Greek too, so I think it's going to be correct. Jesus made a whip. Now I've heard people say, Jesus lost his temper, I can lose mine. If you look at this, this took some time. This was not just like Jesus saw a whip and he grabbed it because he lost his temper and he began to drive out the the animals and turn the No. Jesus had to do a deliberate action. And it says he saw some cords and he made a whip. I can see my Lord setting down and taking these cords and beginning to make. And man, there's no, I've even looked online. I'd love to make one. I get about, I watch about a minute and say, nope, it's not going to happen. This is intricate work. It's amazing how these things are made. But Jesus made a whip. Now, to make a whip, there's several things you'd have to have. First, you'd have to have some determination and patience. Patience. This wouldn't have been something that just in 30 seconds Jesus and they started whipping people. I I think this took him some time, some determination. He was deliberate, determined, and patient enough to sit down and actually make a whip. It also takes knowledge. Where in the world would Jesus have had the knowledge to have made a whip? Prop number two. (sighs) Okay. One of my favorite authors right now uh, that I've been reading a lot of and for the last few years is a man by the name of Alfred Edersheim. Believe it or not, he's a Jew. Um, So Alfred Edersheim is a Jewish rabbi who accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior and now writes incredible books about all of the Jewish, everything that God instructed with his people, the Jews, leads to Jesus Christ. Everything. And in one part of his book, he talks about Jesus being raised. What, what kind of childhood would Jesus have had? Uh, and so, you know, the Jews are great about keeping history and those things. So, and he talks about Jesus being raised in Nazareth at the childhood. Now, we all know the father, earthly father of Jesus was what? He was a... A carpenter, that's right. And so Jesus would have obviously learned that trade. Um, I show, I got a couple of my former 10th graders back there um, and, and other class students. That's right. I usually showed the Passion of the Christ to my 10th grade class. And it's funny, in one part, Jesus is building this really high table. And so it shows he's a carpenter. Later, I asked the students, I'm like, so what did you learn? And somebody said, Jesus invented the table? No, I think he missed it. You know. So anyway, um, so Jesus would have obviously had carpentry skills. He he would have known how to build and work and and um, just I, I believe Joseph. That's the way you t- you know your son took your trade. Edersheim says that the um, the traditions of that day. Would have been that one year of a young man's life, he would trade places with another family. He would go live with a family, and their son would come live with that family to learn a different trade for one year. Jesus would have gone to another family, and that son of that family would have come and worked with Joseph for a year. I just wonder, what kind of family did Jesus go and spend a summer and a year with? Boy, he sure talked a lot about shepherding. He sure talked a lot about sheep and then even says, I am the good shepherd. You think maybe Jesus spent a year as a shepherd? I do. And a tool that shepherds might often learn how to make to be able to use to warn off predators and straighten up those unruly sheep is a whip. How did Jesus know how to make it? Because he had worked with the shepherds for a year. It was something he learned. It was knowledge that he had. Now, of course, he's God. but I think just in his earthly life, he learned how to make a whip. It was something... That he knew it was something that was a deliberate action. It was, he was determined. It was, he took patience and determination to make this whip. It took knowledge for him to make this whip. And Jesus deliberately sat down and began to make a whip. He didn't lose his temper. He was in control the entire time. The fruit of the Spirit, the last fruit of the Spirit that is mentioned, is self control. Jesus never lost control. He knew what he was doing. It was a deliberate action because God's people were not doing what God's people were supposed to be doing. And he needed to change it and he wanted to change it quick. And so he made a deliberate action. That leads me all the way up to this point. It is time for the church to take some deliberate actions against the enemy. The enemy is doing everything that he can do to keep us from providing for God's people what we're supposed to provide. Think about what we as a church provide to God's people. Community, support, love, fellowship. Has this been a year in which the enemy has said, let's see how many of those things I can remove? I don't want the church doing what the church is supposed to be doing. Let's see how many of those things we can get rid of. And we've not been able to do. Now, fortunately, we refuse. We've taken some deliberate actions. We've made some whips. I believe we said it. Technology has been a whip that we've made to say, no, we're still going to hear a message. We're still going to fellowship. We're still going to share in the Lord's table together. Whether it be in my home, in my living room, or at a church building. We made a whip because we have refused to allow the enemy to take it away. We have refused to be that early church that Jesus walked in and said, wait a minute, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And it's not a fact that you're just not doing it. You're doing things that are wrong. So it's time for us to make some whips. What is the greatest whip that a church can make. Do you know this story was so important that the Holy Spirit told two gospel writers to put it in their books? So we also read this in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 11, there's one phrase that's not in John's Gospel. Mark's Gospel says this, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there, He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches and those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, and this is the part that John didn't record that Mark shares, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Prayer is is the greatest whip that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, have as a weapon to fight against the enemy. Just this week, I had a discussion um, where someone had had shared something about about prayer, and someone else replied to that saying, you know, um, I agree prayer is very important, but do many people say, I'll pray and then never do, never do any action, never put feet to it. I have felt that for a long, long time. As a matter of fact, I'll confess this, that I've even made the statement that I think sometimes people use, well, I'll be praying for you as a cop-out, as an excuse There may be times people need you to do something. And all we say is, well, I'll pray for you. And I believe sometimes that person leaves wondering, will they really even pray for me? And unfortunately, all of us are guilty of saying, I'll be praying for you, and then we don't. And then we don't. Or it's just a real quick prayer. Prayer. So I shared in that discussion. And it's been amazing how many people have said, I felt that same thing. I have wondered that same thing. And several pastor friends of mine, and I started doing this years ago as well, that when somebody would call me or share with me, I would say, well, let's pray right now. Let's pray on the phone. Let's, let's, let's bow right now. Let's pray. And, and usually they're shocked. Oh, I didn't mean pray now. Just I want you to be praying for me. No, let's pray right now. How do we really pray? Do we really pray the kind of praying that Jesus prayed? Do we really kind of pray the way the early church was praying? Remember that when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, what was the church doing? They were gathered together praying. Is that the kind of life that we live? I want you to think right now that if you had some incredibly horrible ordeal happen, who would be the first person you would call to pray for you? And the reason I ask that is because it's probably going to be somebody that you know. Not only will they pray, but they know how to pray. And man, they are prayer warriors. They can really pray. I want that person praying for me. You know, I remember early on when I was first diagnosed with diabetes, um, it, it just kind of ravished my body. I got very, very, very sick. And I was really having some issues. And, Claude and Evelyn were down. Uh, We lived in Florida, and my parents lived in Florida, and Claude and Evelyn were down. So we had an evening where Michelle and I and and Taylor was born at that time. We went to my parents, and Claude and Evelyn were there, and we just had an evening together. Well, I had a doctor appointment the next day, and I remember when we were getting ready to leave, we were out in the driveway, and I said, wait a minute. I want to go back in the house, and I want my dad and my father-in-law to pray for me. Because if there's two men that I know believe in the power of prayer, they know how to pray. I've said this about Claude before. and I, Actually, I said this one time about him and then asked him to come up and pray, and he got mad at me. Um, <laughs> if you've ever heard him pray, when he prays and he mentions the name of Jesus, it's like he's just sitting in a room talking to his best friend. I've never heard anybody do that. He just talks to Jesus like he's just sitting there, just, we've been friends for life. Is that the way that we pray? Is that the way that we love our Lord? Is that the way we are deliberate in our actions about praying for one another, about praying for our needs, about praying for the church, for God's work to be done? Do we make whips when we go against the enemy? I like how Mark said he wouldn't even allow the merchants to come back. When we pray, we ought to close all the doors so the enemy doesn't even come back. That's the kind of praying that I'm talking about. One of my favorite pastors is Jim Cimbala, started a church in Brooklyn. Uh, many of you have probably heard the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. That's in his church. Um, he pastors the Brooklyn Tabernacle. And he decided early in that ministry that he said, whether I preach or not, whether we sing or not, we will be a church of prayer. And they started Wednesday night prayer meetings. Now on Sunday morning, I think they, they have about four services on Sunday. and all total, it's ten to 12,000, somewhere in there. They have more show up on their Wednesday night prayer meeting than they do for Sunday worship. That's how serious they are. He has about 100 people during every sermon that he preaches that are in a part of the church praying for him during his entire sermon. That's how they believe in prayer. And he said this great quote. He said, I've seen more change in a person's life happen in 10 minutes of prayer than in 10 of my sermons. That's the way we got to pray. It is time for us to make a whip. It is time for us to defeat this enemy and make a rip. It's time for us to begin like those Old Testament men who said, I'm going to speak this into existence. That's the kind of faith that I have to believe in prayer that this can happen. And Lord, I'm praying it will. That's the kind of prayer life that we've got to have. Jim Simbala also shares an incredible story of a young man named Calvin Calvin Hunt was addicted to crack cocaine. He was married and he would come home, usually beat his wife, steal every bit of money he could find, and head out into the streets of Brooklyn to get high. Somebody invited his wife to the church to begin to pray in these prayer meetings, and she went. She started going every Wednesday. Calvin found out about it. So Calvin got a gun. And he decided that one Wednesday when he came home, that he was going to tell his wife, if you leave to go to that prayer meeting tonight, I'm going to kill you. And he did. He went home, and he had the gun, and he pointed it at her, and he told her. She said, you can do whatever you want to think you're going to do, but I'm going to prayer meeting. And she left. Calvin tells the story at that point. It was the lowest point of his life. He said, I was, I'd lost everything. We'd lost our home. I'd lost my job. I'd lost all the money we had in savings. And I was in debt thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. There were men looking for me to take my life because I owed them so much money. And yet the only thing I could think about was the cardboard box I was living in under a bridge because that's where I could go and get high on crack cocaine. He said, "I almost took my life that night," and then I got really mad. And I said, "I'm going to go down to that church, and I'm going to kill my wife." And so he started down to the church. Here were thousands of people in this church that night, praying. And Calvin's wife was there, and she was praying. She was very distraught. I think of Hannah when she was praying on the steps of the temple, and and uh, you know the priest comes out and he. What, what is wrong with you? Are you drunk? You know, and she's like, "No, I'm praying for a son." You know, and and I, I think of that. That's how she was. She was so distraught. She's crying. That the pastor went over to ask her what was wrong, and she told him. And so the pastor started praying, "Lord Jesus, I pray right now in the power of Your name that You send Calvin through those doors. I pray that He comes walking in right now as we're praying." And I pray that when he comes walking in this place that your spirit fall upon him and that he is a changed man and that he runs to the front of this church and gives his heart to you. And he just kept praying that over and over. Well, other people, they didn't even know who Calvin was, started praying that. And more and more. And Calvin walked in the door. Calvin thought he was coming to take his wife and use that gun. And he walked in the door. And Calvin says, there I heard thousands of people. Lord, send Calvin right now. Send him into this church. Bring him here right now. And he ran. He ran to the front. And he grabbed his wife. And that night, Calvin Hunt accepted Jesus Christ. They put him in a rehab. He got cleaned up. Two years later, he wrote a song called I'm Clean by the blood of the Lamb. I'm clean. That's 25 years ago. He's still singing for the Lord, and that's the kind of prayer where you take a whip and you say, Devil, you don't have any authority in this place, you don't even have a, an inch. I'm turning the tables, I'm driving you out, and you cannot come back. Does the fact that Jesus said he wouldn't let them come back, does that mean he stood at the door with the whip saying you can't come back in here? Yeah, because it's the same Jesus that says, when I'm the good shepherd, I'll lay at the gate. Not only just to keep my sheep in, but to keep anything else from getting in. That's the kind of Lord that we have. Is that the kind of prayer that we have? I ask you to think about that person that you would call. Are you the person that somebody else would call? Do you live a life that you have such an incredible prayer life that you know if somebody else was in need? They'd call me because they trust my prayers. Are you that kind of person? Will you pray like that? What kind of prayer life? Well, how do we really, truly pray? Let's make a whip. It is time to make a whip. It is time to drive the enemy out. It is time to pray the kind of faith prayers that say, I believe this will happen. That's the kind of praying we need to have. What should the church have been doing? What should we be doing? What were they doing? What are we doing? It's time to make a whip. It's deliberate action. Lord Jesus, today. Your presence is here. Your spirit is moving among us. I believe even those that are watching from home, your spirit is with them. And oh, how we need you. Lord, I think about just the power you had that day. Because the church wasn't being the church. And then, Lord, it just breaks my heart to think, if you came to me, what would your feelings be toward my life? Would there be some tables in my life that you would have to overturn? Would there be things in my life that you would have to whip out and run from the temple courts and in my own life? Would there be some cleansing that you needed to do in me? What about our church? When you look to us, are we doing your job? Are we doing what you called us to do? Is there some tables that need turned over? Is there some things that you need to run out of here? Well, it's time for us to make a whip. So, Lord, I would just ask right now, as we make this whip of prayer, this incredible weapon that we have against the enemy, that, Lord, we would begin to pray powerfully. Pray like we've never prayed before. Lord, there are people in this church, in our families, our leadership has been praying. There's a family that desperately needs our prayers right now. And Lord, I just am reminded, you are physical about it. We need to be. We need to put feet on those prayers. When people ask us to pray, we ought to pray right then and then say, now, what can I do? What can I do? Lord, when people have needs, let us pray, but let us do, let us be your feet, your hands, your love. And it starts with this great weapon that we have, this great tool, this great and powerful thing that we have called prayer. That's where it starts. So Lord, let us be the church for you. Let us be what you've called us to be and be people of prayer in a mighty, mighty, mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing this song. I think there may be some of you and and I'm going to leave it in your hands of your comfort. Maybe we just want to fill the front of this building and pray. Uh, Maybe you want to Go pray with someone. I don't know. Obviously. We are, we're inhibited. We're limited. You do what you're comfortable doing. But I want to open this time as the worship team sings. Let's pray. Let's just pray. Let's spend some time really praying that we would do some mighty things in prayer. And if you want to come up and pray together, if you want to go to someone and pray, that's fine. Let's just pray and end this service with a powerful time of praying to the Lord. Thank you. one of those songs that have taken an old, old song, put some modern things to it. But you probably remember years and years ago, we sang it this way. He answers prayer.
1: He I love you so ah.
0: We're so good. Lord, you are so good to us and we love you so much. Lord, let us be people of prayer. I would pray that when people look to the people of this church, that's how they would describe us. Those people know how to pray. That even our church, it's, boy, that's a praying church. More than just a slogan, more than just the nonchalant passerby, they pray that people would have faith to say man that church they know how to pray i have confidence in their prayers that we would be that way as individuals and that lord that enemy is going to come he's going to try his best to do everything he can to keep the church from being about the church's business about our work and i pray that lord we'd have a holy anger to make that whip of prayer and drive that enemy out and not allow him to come back. Lord, there are people praying and there are people who will continue to pray. So go with us, Lord. Let us just go with that attitude of prayer. Let us keep praying and keep praying and keep praying. And Lord, we will thank you right now in advance for the answers that we're going to see to those prayers. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.